You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we talk with Jim McKelvey, who is the co-founder of Square, a financial service merchant service aggregator and mobile payment company. In 2009, he designed a card reader, which in 2011 was inducted in the Museum of Modern Art. Jim then teamed up with other St. Louis-based serial entrepreneurs to help found Cultivation Capital, which was ranked the seventh most active venture capital firm founded since 2009 and the third most active lead investor since 2017. McKelvey has been appointed as an independent director of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. On today's show, we talk about how you can't be an expert as an entrepreneur, the incredible story of how he met Jack Dorsey, co-founder of Twitter, and how they built Square together. The story of the man that if he'd wanted to be, could have been the richest man to have ever lived. And his new book, The Innovation Stack, Building an Unbeatable Business, One Crazy Idea at a Time. And Jack has offered our listeners five copies of his new book. So write a review, take a picture and email us, and you'll have your chance to win one of the five copies. All right, now let's start the show. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Jim, thank you for taking the time today to be our show. Just to give our listeners a little bit of background of yourself, can you tell us a little bit about what you've done, your history up until this point? Well, I'm an engineer by training, degrees in economics, computer science. I was a professional glassblower for years and actually still am. I still have a studio in St. Louis and I make and sell work. Our studio is closed right now because we can't have contact or share blowpipes with anybody. In addition to that, I've started half a dozen companies, started a nonprofit called Launch Code, which trains people to become programmers. And I also am the co-founder of Square. And then right now I'm deputy director of the St. Louis Federal Reserve. And then Jim, can you tell us a little bit about that first company you built and the problems you were trying to solve when building it? So the very first one was a company called Mira Digital Publishing. And it was a company I started back in 1989. And we were building software for document imaging. This was a precursor to Adobe Acrobat, which means that when Adobe launched Acrobat, we got our heads handed to us. But in that process, I hired a kid from a local high school. His name was Jack Dorsey. And Jack and I have been friends and colleagues ever since. And believe it or not, that company Mira is still around. It makes money every year. <laughs> I still own it. And I still think fondly of having one company for 30 years. So then what was the problem you're solving at Mira that kind of has allowed it to stay around for 30 years? Have there been a lot of pivots, a lot of evolution, or the same problem you solved then is what you're solving now? Originally, it was electronic record storage. We needed a digital format for contracts and documents. And this was before Acrobat. So these days, everybody uses the PDF format. But in the days before that, there was nothing. And we built something, a precursor to Acrobat. And it was doing all right, but then Adobe, which was a much larger company, just came and killed us. So we pivoted the company into basically using Acrobat to publish uh, trade show literature on CDs. And the way that went down was the imaging trade show where we were exhibiting next to Adobe when they unveiled our demise had this terrible irony because all the attendees would walk home with bags of literature on how to have a paperless office. And so I thought, well, this is stupid. Why don't we give them all a CD-ROM with all the trade show literature on? And so that's what we did. And it turns out there were literally thousands of trade shows every year where people were taking all this paper home and they couldn't search it or do anything. So we put it on a searchable platform and created the world's first trade show 
CD-ROMs. Now, you have to remember this pre-internet, so companies didn't have websites. So being on the trade show CD-ROM was a fantastic way to keep your product literature and name in front of all your customers all year. So it was a great business. But then the internet showed up and it was clear that that was going to get wiped out. And what happened there was I knew the internet was going to wipe us out and you can kind of see the virus coming, right? I got the team together and I said, guys, we have to switch to another business and we have to start publishing technical work on CDs, not doing all this product literature. But I was not able to get the company to follow me. Like they would all say yes, but then they wouldn't actually do anything differently. So the only guy who would listen to me was my summer intern, 15-year-old kid named Jack Dorsey. And Jack and I basically went off by ourselves and pivoted the whole company. So we built a second company within the first company. And then when the first company died, we had this other thing going. And it was sort of a testament to Jack's ability to work, even as a 15-year-old, and my inability to lead. I'm not a guy who runs companies. I'm a guy who starts companies. So wait, you and Jack went kind of separate in the company, started your own company inside the company. What was the idea behind that? How was working with Jack, who you'd mentioned was 15 years old at that time? What was the dynamics like? Well, I was 26. So it was an inexperienced boss and an inexperienced worker. But look, the problems were obvious. We knew we had a job to do and we did it. I eventually hired a bunch of people to work for Jack. So it was kind of ironic to introduce these 30-year-old people that I was hiring to their 16-year-old boss. But the end result was it worked very well. And even as kids, we were able to do what we needed to do and the company survives to this day and still runs some of that basic technology that we built. So 30 years later, that company's innovation stack is still in existence, although we didn't do that much that was interesting or innovative, but it worked. I'm really curious about a little bit more about that company, the dynamics inside of it, where you had a 15-year-old, 16-year-old who I'm sure was still in high school having to attend classes or? No, this was uh, mostly during the summer. So he was full-time during the summer, part-time during the school year. It was not a full-time job when he was in school and he would ride his bike to work. And he pulled an all-nighter with us on his first day at the office, which got him in trouble with his mother. But other than that, it went pretty smoothly. Jack was very talented. And I think some of the things that people see today, I saw very early and we became friends. And then after they kicked him out of Twitter the first time, he asked me if I wanted to start a company with him. And I said, yeah, let's do it. And neither one of us had an idea, but eventually I was in my glass studio trying to sell a piece of glass and lost a sale because I couldn't take an Amex card. And that's what led us to the idea of a square. So be nice to everybody, even the summer intern, because he may someday be your boss. Okay. So with that, how did you guys agree when you formed Square, who would be in what role? You were his boss before and he was an intern, but he was coming from Twitter at that point with some more experience. How did you guys decide who would take the lead, who would be the partner, different roles, different dynamics, different responsibilities? What was that conversation like? It took about 15 minutes. Jack wanted to run the company. I didn't want to run the company, so it was super easy. We decided that Jack should have more equity than I did because he had more responsibilities. It was a super simple conversation. And by the way, that's how all my companies run. I'm never CEO, or if I am, it's this sort of temporary position. So I've got five or six organizations now, and they're all run by other people. And I do that because management is not my thing, and I'm not particularly good at it, and I don't enjoy it. And the people who I manage particularly don't enjoy it. So it's better for everyone if you get somebody else to run it. What are your tips for finding out your strengths? I mean, you just mentioned you may not be a strong suit for you to manage. 
but you've definitely found what you're good at in your life. What's some advice on how to find that path? Failure helps, right? You find your strengths by learning your weaknesses. In my case, I have tried managing and I can do it at sort of a mediocre level, but it uses a great amount of my energy and it's not something that's particularly pleasant for anybody. So I think self-awareness helps. The other thing is, I think having your ego in check, right? Like I'm really happy to give the CEO title away as quickly as possible to somebody who's competent. And I know some people like to have their job titles and stuff like that, but I've never really cared what my job title was. And so it's been fairly easy for me to get out of the way. The only issue, and, and this is probably a trick for people in my situation, if you are the owner of the business, but not the day-to-day CEO, you will have a situation where you disagree with the CEO. That always happens. And in those cases, if you override the person you put in charge, you will be back in charge. And so one of my strong recommendations is, is that if you are making a decision to not be the CEO, but you are, let's say you have controlling interest in the company, be ready for that disagreement. And when it happens, you support your manager. When you're saying support your manager, is that to the other board members? Is that just publicly? Obviously publicly and obviously to the board members, but also privately, you basically say, here's what I think. And they say, well, I think this, and you say, it's your call and you let them do it. And in every one of my companies, I've had disagreements with management. I think most cases, the management has been correct, but we don't know because we never took my path. Maybe my path was also a great idea, but we went their way and so far it's worked. And then when you were coming up with the idea for Square, how much banking experience did you have at that time? How did you do research for coming up with the actual process? I had zero banking experience except as a customer. And I would say most of that experience was negative because I was a small business and small business tends to get uh, sort of abused by the banking system. I was also a credit card user. I obviously have a credit card, but then I also accepted credit cards at my studio, just not American Express. So I knew what it was like to be sort of abused by those people as well. But I had no knowledge of how the banking system really worked. And it was funny, neither did Jack. So we entered this business where neither of the founders had any specific information. Then how'd you go about even creating that roadmap? Was it through mentors, advisors, or the first people you hired? No. It turns out, and this is one of the reasons I wrote the book, and that is we specifically didn't have any expertise in the company. And that was not an accident. We tried at first to hire somebody who was a former head of MasterCard to advise us, and all his advice was just terrible. And the reason it was terrible was not because he was an idiot or anything. It was because he only knew what the system could do. And we were building a new system. And so it turns out, if you look at most businesses, most businesses are copies of other businesses. So you want to open up an auto dealership. Well, there are auto dealerships and you can figure out how to do that. They're models for almost everything we do. And that is not the sort of business we were in. What Square was doing was something that had never been done. And what we were doing was we were giving credit card processing to very, very small businesses and individuals, people who were almost by definition excluded from the existing systems. And because we were doing something that had never been done before, we could not copy the existing systems. And that forced us to go on this path of invention and innovation. What were the biggest challenges at the very beginning there? We had to figure out a way to build a system that would work. So it turns out that when you're trying to give credit card processing to people who don't have credit scores or 
business accounts or enough capital to interest the major banks, there are no underwriting policies or procedures for them. And during the first week of running Square, what I discovered was that there were 17 laws, rules, and regulations that we were violating with each transaction. So there was this massive roadblocks in our way. So what we did was we first decided that we would do it anyway, because we thought we were doing was legit. And I knew it was legit because I was a merchant who wanted this product. I mean, it wasn't like we were sitting there thinking, well, maybe if we build it, some people will want it. Like I knew for a fact that I wanted it and I knew exactly what I wanted. So we already had our test case in one of the co-founders. And so I could very easily give direction to the team as to what I wanted them to build for me. Then the question was, well, how many people like me are there? And the answer was, we had no idea. So Jack and I really had no idea that it would be this huge success. But there was a high likelihood that there were other people like me. We just didn't know that there were millions or tens of millions of them. When you're looking at a problem like that, how do you go about analyzing the market size, the potential customers in the future? That's a great question if you want to copy. So if you want to copy a business, you can analyze the market. So let's say you want to analyze the market for let's do respirator masks. It's got a worldwide shortage of them right now. So you want to do an analysis of that. What you do is you'd study all the companies that make respirator masks. There are 20 of them. And you'd find the people who use respirators, which is mostly the construction trades and hospitals. And you would analyze the market and you say, do we want to be the 21st company making these respirator masks? And you could choose to do it or not do it. And you could have a very clear idea of how much demand was in the market, you could copy designs from other companies. You could figure out what your price should be because you kind of knew what the price of a respirator mask was. You could do all that stuff. You can know. And that's how most businesses start, not the businesses that I study. So the businesses that I study are building new markets and they are doing a completely different process. So the reason I wrote this book was because I had to answer a question that was bugging me for years, which was how did Square survive an attack by Amazon? And the answer was, where's DNA was fundamentally different than all the other companies that Amazon had attacked and killed. So if you look at Amazon's kill ratio to startups, it's 100%, with one exception, and that is Square. We're the only startup that I know of that Amazon copied their product, undercut their price, and didn't end up blowing that startup out of the market. So because of that, I was confused. And I said, well, why did not Amazon win? And the answer shocked me. I didn't have a word for it because we were doing stuff different than other entrepreneurs. And it turns out that if you look at the history of the word entrepreneur, the word entrepreneur used to mean a hundred years ago, somebody who was doing something different, i.e. they were not copying. These days, entrepreneurs can copy. So let's say I want to start a business to make respirator masks. Okay. I would be called an entrepreneur. If I went out like tomorrow and started uh, popping masks out, then you'd say, oh, Jim's a respirator mask entrepreneur. But I would say 100 years ago, you would not have been called an entrepreneur. You would have been called a business person. And the difference is profound. Business people copy what has been done before. And that is almost always a better way to make money than entrepreneurship. Because entrepreneurship has no guarantees. It has no roadmap. And you're doing something that hasn't been done before, so there's a lot of chance for failure. It turns out that Square was doing something that had never been done before. And I found this pattern. And then I found dozens of companies, actually hundreds of companies throughout history that had the same DNA. Now, there weren't many of these companies. Like if you took the entrepreneurial companies 
and compared to normal businesses, you know, we'd be like one in a thousand. But for these one in a thousand companies, they had tremendous differences. So the way they just dealt with their customers was different. The way they grew their markets was different. The way they priced their products was different. And it all came back to this thing that I called an innovation stack, which was a series of inventions they were forced to create. And I say forced to create because, John, I think a lot of people think they should go out and be inventive. They think they should go and like, I should be innovative. Like it's all cool to be an inventor and stuff. And that's usually not the right move. Like the right move is always copy something else that works. That is how basically life on this planet functions. Like you're a copy of your parents. I'm a copy of my parents. I got one of my little copies behind me and she may burst in at any moment and interrupt this podcast. But the point is copying a success is a good way to ensure another success. If you think that you should just be innovative because it's cool, you're probably going to die. But the companies that I studied were doing innovation for a different reason. They were doing it as a means of survival. And when you do it as a means of survival, you make decisions differently and you build these things called innovation stacks. And if you evolve an innovation stack, this amazingly powerful thing happens. And that is you effectively dominate an industry. So every company that I found that had an innovation stack became the biggest company in their industry. So biggest airline company in the country, innovation stack, biggest bank in the world, innovation stack, biggest furniture company in the world, innovation stack, square, innovation stack. Like it's just this precursor that leads to tremendous success. It's just really sort of brutal to build one. And we happened to do that by accident at Square. Like we didn't know any of this theoretical stuff when it happened, but I saw it in hindsight and that's why I wrote the book. Can you tell us some more stories or examples from the book of innovative companies? Sure. So there were two that I think were really critical for me. The first was I wanted to prove that Square was no accident because like we survived this attack by Amazon and I thought, well, maybe we were just lucky. And then it's like, luck doesn't really explain that. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to find another parallel for Square, but I didn't want to use a tech company. So Square uses a lot of technology. And if you use technology well, you can have a disproportionate level of success because of viral growth and marketplace lock-in and just the network effect. Like you will have these factors that will supercharge your company's success, even if the company is not run particularly well. So what I wanted to do was I wanted to study non-tech companies and see if non-tech companies had this same phenomenon. Because if the phenomenon is valid, then it should exist independent of technology. And it turns out that I was able to find hundreds of examples. And so I had so many examples, I said, well, I want to study another square. So I want to study a company that was founded by outsiders for the purpose of including people who had been excluded. So in this case, it was banking. So they were trying to build a bank to allow people who weren't using banks to save their money and make loans and stuff like that. I wanted it based in the United States. And I wanted essentially another square. And I found it. I found this perfect example. As a matter of fact, what you think of as banking today, like your concept of a bank is what was built by the Bank of Italy. So a hundred years ago, banking was unrecognizable. So first of all, you couldn't bank because you're not a member of the aristocracy. Secondly, if you wanted to go in, you couldn't talk to a teller. They would not, in many cases, speak your native language. You couldn't even communicate with them. They had no such things as installment loans, car loans, home loans. There was no savings accounts. Like There were no branches. All the things that you think of as a bank, 
It was invented by a guy who was a produce vendor. Like he sold lettuce, he sold oranges and walnuts, things like that. But he was pissed off that, oh, and by the way, he dropped out of school at age 15. So he was not an educated person, but he wanted to build a bank for people like himself. And he did. And the bank that he built so dominated the world of banking that it became the largest bank on the planet. The Bank of Italy, which bought the Bank of America and renamed the Bank of Italy the Bank of America, but like they bought Bank of America and just took the name. He was this epic story. So I tell his story in the book. As a matter of fact, his story was so good that I made it into a graphic novel. It's fantastic stuff. There's a city blowing up, right? Gotta have fun with this stuff. And his name was A.P. Giannini. And Giannini really was the first person I'd ever read about in history that was doing stuff like what I had done. His story seemed like the way my life was unfolding. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. So I started looking for other people. So I found all these stories throughout history. That's great. History is fantastic. The problem with history is that everybody's dead. So nobody's around to argue with you. So let's say you're writing a book and let's say you have some idea and you go cherry pick history for supporting examples. Well, if you do that, and let's say your idea is bad, it's wrong. Nobody is going to crawl out of the grave and say, hey, Sean, you're full of it, right? Because history, we can kind of make it whatever we want in some ways because the protagonists are no longer with us. So I was not going to do that. And so I did all this research and I needed to find a living protagonist. But again, somebody who wasn't in a tech firm. And the best example I found was Southwest Airlines. So I got on the phone with Herb Kelleher, who's the founder of Southwest Airlines. He was in his 80s. I flew down to Dallas with all my research. I sat down and spent an afternoon with Herb. And I basically laid all my work at his feet. And I said, Mr. Kelleher, do you think this is right? Like, does this phenomenon that I think I've identified fit your memory of what happened in Southwest? And he said, absolutely. And he said, not only that, he told me a bunch of other stuff that I had overlooked. And I was so excited coming out of Herb's office that I decided that I wasn't just going to write a business book, that I was going to write a graphic novel. Because the other thing about these stories of entrepreneurship is that they are epic stories. There are Nazis and murders and stuff blowing up. And like Herb went to the Supreme Court twice. I thought, my God, this is graphic novel stuff. So I did this graphic novel and I called Herb and I was all excited. I was like, yeah, you know, I finally got the book together. It's going to be great. And by the way, like I'm going to portray you as a superhero. And Herb hated the idea. And I was crestfallen because like this guy's one of my idols and he's a living legend. But he did not want to be portrayed as a cartoon character. And the reason was, and he gave me a perfect reason. He said, Jim, the subject you're talking about is so serious that I don't think you should make it a cartoon. And when I was a kid, cartoons were not serious. And maybe they are different today, but I'm 86 years old and I don't think that I want to be portrayed that way. So please do not do that. And so out of respect for this man, I rewrote half my book and cut out half the cartoon. So I submitted something to my publisher that was like half graphic novel and then half business book. And the publisher looked at me and said, you idiot, you realize how many people use e-readers and, and audiobooks these days? Like if you do something that's half graphic novel, you're losing half your audience. So why don't you just switch it to text? So I did. So, but if you read the book, like you can tell it's a cartoon. I wasn't able to get all these sort of exclamation points out of it. So I made my own sort of graphic novel to go along with it. So you can get a free copy of the graphic novel. It wasn't published by Penguin. 
but uh, you can go to jimmckelvey.com and get a free copy of APG and e story. We'll have all that information in the show notes for everyone. Herb is going to the Supreme Court twice. You're fighting Amazon. These entrepreneurs, how do they have the mindset to keep going, to face all these challenges? How does one build that or advice for overcoming such challenges? It's pretty simple. Motivation is difficult if you're a business person and super easy if you're an entrepreneur. So if you're a business person, you're copying everyone. And every day you wake up and five competitors have just copied what you did last month, or you're trying to copy what one of your competitors are doing, or they lowered prices, so now you got a lower price. Like That requires a tremendous amount of energy. For an entrepreneur, it's different because it's just a question of do you die or not? It's just survival. Like in a normal business, you can kind of slack off a little bit and maybe you're not the top company, maybe you're the 17th company, but you'll still make money. I'm on the Fed. We regulate hundreds of banks. If you're the 600th bank in whatever stack rank you want, you're still making money. Like you're fine. You're 600. Maybe you, you work hard, you can move up to 300. You know, work really hard, you can move up to number five. You're all fine. So that requires a tremendous amount of motivation. But in the world of the entrepreneur, if you fail, you die. Like your company ceases to exist. So if you're in a situation where innovation is necessary, then it's a survival case. And so in Square's case, like we didn't have any other choice. It was either fix this or the company dies. So ironically, in a situation like that, there are no motivational problems. Like everybody comes to work, everyone's totally jazzed. If you want to quit, you just leave the company. But the company survives until everybody quits. And I've had situations with my companies where like everybody has quit and it's been just me. Like Mira, the company that I talked about at the beginning, it's been around for 30 years. There were two times in its life when Mira was just me and I didn't quit. Here it is again, you know, it just kind of springs back like some crazy invasive plant species. Okay, then how can the founder be that leader to encourage everyone to keep going and not just quit? So it depends on the problem you're trying to solve. So at the core of all these companies is not some motivation to get rich or make a name for yourself or do anything sort of external. The motivation is to do something that has not been done before. So Herb Kelleher wanted regular people to be able to fly because before he started Southwest, they couldn't afford to fly. Like a ticket on an airplane was like a thousand bucks in $1970. And you could not fly unless you were rich. And Herb and the team that founded Southwest with him wanted to change that. And that was their mission, to fly people affordably. Jack and I wanted to give economic power to small businesses in the first case of credit cards, but then in the case of you know all these tools that we build. So that like, why is it that your big competitor down the street has an employee management system and you have to do everything on a spreadsheet? Why is it that they have a loyalty program that draws people in and you don't have one? Like, why is it that they can click a button and see their inventory, whereas you have to walk up and down with a yellow legal pad? Like, we're building tools to make those things happen because that's what we want to do. That's our mission. And Giannini's case, he grew up, like his father was murdered when he was six years old. Like he grew up with a single mother, two brothers. This was lived through the depression. Like this guy had a tough life and he watched his city burn to the ground. He watched people that he loved in just these terrible situations. And he knew that banking would help them. Like people in Giannini's era were going to loan sharks to get the money they needed for any sort of emergency. So, I mean, like we've got a bad situation happening in the world right now, but 
like loan sharks is not that big a problem. Like we're like, not compared to what it used to be. And GD wanted to fix that. So if you choose to solve a problem and you care about that problem and you collect people around you who also care about that problem, there's your motivation. Like I'm not a great leader. I've never been, but I'm pretty darn good at pointing to problems that other people care about. And it turns out great leaders show up when you point to the right problem. Talking about problems, right now in fintech and the future of fintech, are there any things on the horizon that people should be aware of or that really are exciting you? I'm going to give you two answers because I'm a venture capitalist. I have a $150 million fund that does fintech investment. And we invest in software as a service model. And we invest in this rinse and repeat thing that almost always produces a pretty good return for the fund. It's a formula. We follow the formula. You build something innovative that the banking system doesn't have or the financial system doesn't have, and you sell it as software as a service and demonstrate that you've got growing revenue and will invest and help you scale that massively and sell you off to one of the five platforms that always acquires these companies. And if you don't want to sell out, we don't want to work with you. And if you don't want to follow the formula, we don't want to work with you. So in that case, in fintech, like if you just want to make a bunch of money, there's a complete formula for that. And I invest in that because I've got other people's money that have trusted me and we're actually doing really well. But that's fundamentally boring. I believe there is another type of fintech, more characterized by what Square did, that is trying to solve problems that have not been solved before. So if you solve one of those and you build an innovation stack, my venture fund would not invest with you. But anyone who does invest with you will probably make a thousand to one return. Can you talk about that a little bit more, your funds investment thesis? Because the research I did before, at least on Crunchbase, you're one of the most active venture capital funds, or at least since 2009. But you just mentioned right there that you like kind of this boring area where these others might have bigger returns. I would say this, early days on venture funds is highly suspect. We're doing very, very well. We're doing this formula. The formula is about as exciting as investing in commercial real estate. I mean, it's one step above real estate investing. Now, if you've done real estate investing, you know that there's some things you have to do. You got to check a few things. Successful real estate investors, they're not idiots. They have a certain formula and they follow that formula. They make money. Fintop has a formula. Our formula makes money. We don't deviate from that formula. And that to me is boring, but successful. And getting a nice 10x return on an investment, lovely. Getting a two or three X return on investment, still really good. So that's what we do at Fintop. And I don't personally build companies like that. What I do, I don't even try to build companies, honestly. I mean, sometimes it's a nonprofit. Sometimes what I do is I start something and give it to somebody else. I'm trying to fix problems that I care about. Even Square, like I was well off when I started Square. Square has maybe a little bit more well off, but the bottom line was, I had everything I needed when I started Square. And the only reason to start Square was because I saw this thing that was frustrating to me, which was how merchants were getting ripped off, and I wanted to change it. That was the start of Square. But it was to solve a problem. It was not to have a public company or anything like that. When you're analyzing other companies, or either your venture fund, or just to get to know, how are you analyzing that problem and I also want to go back to the question of any companies on the horizon that are doing anything that people should know about or that are interesting. 
So companies that are doing some very interesting stuff. We have one company in the hotel space that is really lightening the burden for hotel operators, which it turns out is a very manual, inefficient process. And I'm excited about that company. I should say this. I'm as excited as I can be about a company that's just an investment. I am more excited about a friend of mine who came to me with an idea to make an inexpensive diaper because it turns out that diapers are where poverty starts. Typically, young mothers who are sort of on the edge of poverty can't afford to put diapers on their kids. And diapers are insanely expensive vis-a-vis the materials that go into them. And we think there's a way to cut the cost of diapers by 70 or 80%. Like that to me is interesting because that lifts a lot of people out of poverty because like it turns out if you don't have diapers and you can't go to daycare and if you can't go to daycare, then your mother can't work. In a lot of cases, these are single parent families. If you could solve the diaper problem, you would materially help millions of people. Plus diapers themselves right now, and I changed one this morning, are these toxic messes of plastic and all sorts of petrochemicals that shouldn't be filling up our landfill. Like we could achieve the same things with sort of biodegradable absorbent materials. And I believe that's an interesting problem to solve. So like, I'm really interested in diapers right now, but as a social issue, not just because I have a voice can full of them. And then countries around the world, I mean, we're talking about bringing people out of poverty, going back to invention versus innovation, same situation there. Would you recommend that they try to encourage copying and kind of modification for the local culture? Or do you have recommendations to help people outside the U.S. raise their economy out of poverty or up a level? First of all, I would say that one has to be very humble in giving advice from a country like the United States to any other country. Things that work here will not work there. Things that work there will not work here. And so advice from one country is often useless. And we saw that with Square. I mean, Square, we've opened five other countries now, and we're not having the massive success that we had in the US launch, partially because we're not, we're not a Canadian company. We're becoming one now. We've got Canadian DNA in our company, and we've got some Australian DNA in our company, and some Japanese DNA in our company, but we didn't start with that. And so there's a big asterisk on any advice that I would give. But if I did have advice, it would be this basic insight that don't invent unless you have to. But if you have to, understand that invention is a different process and probably not like what you've been told. So one of the things that really pissed me off when I was seeing these epic stories of change from companies that built innovation stack was the difference between first person and second person account. Okay. So first person account, APG&E, he was a very humble man. He died with less than a million dollars. And literally he could have made himself the wealthiest man on the planet. Like he could have easily become the richest person in history, way richer than Carnegie, way richer than JP Morgan, way richer than any of the big names that you've heard throughout history. You know, he could have been five Rockefellers, but he decided that he didn't want that. He was very humble. And I guess I, I'm sort of guilty of this because I, I made him a superhero in a comic book that I designed. But his story, when told by others, is a hero story about this hazel eyed giant who was unafraid after the earthquake and, you know, like this great conquering monster. And it makes him sound not very human. It makes him sound superhuman. When I met Herb Kelleher, he was amazingly humble. When I studied Ingrid Kamprad, he was amazingly humble and he admitted to crying a lot 
during the early days of IKEA. Those are the first person accounts. And I hopefully don't impress anybody as somebody who's bold because I'm not. But then what happens is the stories get retold and they get retold by the Hollywood version. And the Hollywood version of this is these two guys go out and they disrupt an industry and they're, they're bold in the face of uncertainty and they don't take failure and they don't accept compromise. They make it sound like we're some sort of badass heroes. And that to me is a tremendous disservice to normal people who have the potential to do what these other normal people have done and literally change the world. But they then disqualify themselves because they don't feel like they're a superhero. And as a matter of fact, the book is written for one person. And I had her in mind as I was writing every paragraph. And she's brilliant, hardworking. She's great at everything she does. And yet I've seen her in situations where she is not experienced with a problem. And she says, well, I can't do anything about this. I'm not qualified. And here's the thing. She's right. If she comes across a problem that has never been solved before, she is by definition unqualified to solve it. And yet that lack of qualification applies to everybody on the planet. So think about what I said. We're considering a problem that's never been solved before. Who is qualified to solve it? And the answer is nobody's qualified. It hasn't been solved yet. You get qualified after the problem has a known solution, right? So if I want to go out tomorrow and fly an airplane, I got to get qualified. I got to go to the FAA. I got to get a medical. I got to take a written. I got to do 40 hours of flight training with a CFI. I got to do stalls. I got to do spin simulations. I got to do all this stuff. And if I do it all correctly and pass the exam at the end, then they'll give me a little card that allows me to fly an airplane. That allows me to become qualified as a pilot. Great. That is an appropriate thing. But Orville and Wilbur Wright had no such qualifications. Like these guys got into the first airplane, literally the first airplane, unqualified to fly the thing. And you say, well, they couldn't be qualified. And I said, yeah, it's impossible to be qualified if you're doing something the first time. So here's the big message of the book. You think that entrepreneurship or these world-changing companies are somehow built by these egotistical badasses who are either genius or somehow possessing uh, superhuman capabilities. No, they're not. They're people who happen to stumble across this process, which I describe in the book, and that process gives them this massive power to essentially create a totally new market. And you don't have to be a genius or particularly that hardworking to create a new market if you've got an innovation stack. And these can be created by normal people. And frankly, today, like literally today, our world is in chaos. Like we have just shut down the economy. Freaking terrifying. That was on the board yesterday with a four hour Fed meeting. Like, nobody knows, okay? Everyone's terrified. And yet, if you look at the history of these inventions, many of the greatest companies in the world were started in equally terrifying times. The Bank of Italy was started a year before the great San Francisco earthquake. The entire city burned to the ground. Giannini's bank burned to the ground. But the difference between Giannini and the dozen other banks that burned to the ground that day was he was an entrepreneur and he opened up a day later, he got his bank open. He started making loans, literally from the docks of the San Francisco wharf. He responded like an entrepreneur does. He didn't just sit there saying, oh, well, we don't know what to do because we're in this new situation. Look, I know everybody's in hard times and I really feel it, but not to paint a big smiley face on this, but there are going to be some phenomenal companies that learn to adapt in this ecosystem and in the ecosystem, whatever's going to succeed us. And they're going to be the new ones. 
they're going to be the new massive successes. And it'll probably happen right now. The recording of this episode is April 3rd, just to give everyone a frame of reference that's listening to it. But Jim, you're saying that, I mean, the hardships, there's opportunities. Well, yeah, that's sort of trite, though. I mean, you say that, oh, oh, turn lemons into lemonade. Well, look, I hate trite advice. So I'd like to nuance that a little bit and just say, look, I get it. Nobody wants to be here. Nobody wants to be where we are, except maybe the Purell company and Amazon. Like Purell is probably psyched about this. I guess the guys at Zoom are kind of psyched. But with those three exceptions, nobody else wants to be here. That said, at least the companies that I've studied have all had some similar cataclysm. And I'm not talking about some minor annoyance. I'm talking about something that was a flat out disaster. Bank of Italy, their bank burns to the ground. Their safe melts. Then they go through the depression, then a world war. That's a pretty tough environment. You wouldn't wish that on anybody, but they emerge on the other side of all that as the most powerful bank in the world. I was just talking to Christina Kumar, a journalist here in Silicon Valley, and I'd like to thank her because she was the one that made the first introduction that allowed the interview today to actually take place. In the conversation, she was talking about how the application to launch Square Financial Service has just been approved by the FDIC. How will this change the banking system? What can we expect? We are now one step closer to everybody we deal with. And I think that's really helpful. So we had previously connected our systems to another ILC, Industrial Loan Corporation, entities that can be owned by corporations. There are a bunch of them. And there's now, I think, one or two more. We have one. And really what this does is two things. One, it allows us to work without this intermediary in the middle. And I think that's ultimately good because every time there's another link in the chain, there's a chance for the chain to break. And every time there's another link in the chain, there's the chance for misinformation to happen. And so Square was complying with all the banking regulations anyway, because since the people we were dealing with were all very, very heavily regulated, we had to be heavily regulated as a subset. Like regulation never decreases if there's an intermediary. It's just a multiplier. So I think it's just going to be a more efficient system. What does that efficiency mean? Well, I mean, take the current crisis, like we just got that entity approved, so we don't really have a functional tech stack yet. But were we to have had that system in place now, we could probably be getting cash to people who need it faster. Were we able to do that, we might be able to get people their government checks faster or their payments faster. I say checks. We would not get you a check. It would be an electronic payment. And these are unknowns, but it's generally good to have closeness with your customers. And this puts us a little bit closer to our customers. And in these times right now, where people might be looking for more knowledge, more information, have there been any CEOs or mentors or people in your past that other people might be able to gain information from? Well, unfortunately, all the people that I study are dead. So I would say if you have time to read your history, learn about the history of Southwest Airlines, learn about the history of Ikea, Learn about the history of Bird's Eye Foods. Learn about the history of the Bank of America. So I would say I'd make it a history lesson and look at the history of those great companies. As far as me personally, I never really had a mentor. So I always felt very alone and weird. And the reason I never had a mentor was because when I went looking for one, all I could find were business people, i.e. people who were doing stuff that had been done before. And they were very successful. I had a lot of contact with very, very successful people. But none of them were doing what I was doing. And 
So therefore, their advice didn't really work. And the first mentor that I found was actually this dead Italian immigrant named A.P. Giannini. Although I never met him, spoke to me through history and he had lived through some of the same things that Jack and I lived through. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I can take some guidance from this guy's life. And hopefully I will continue to get educated in that way. I just want to ask one more question before wrapping it up. Just wondering, how does one go about designing their life to have a balance? From my research, you do glass blowing. You seem to have this balance of not just heads down focus, but pretty well rounded. How does one go about it? Or is my research just wrong? No, no. I think your research is right. I think your conclusion may be wrong. Like, I don't know that my life is balanced. Like, it just may be a series of imbalances that sort of collectively add up. Look, I do a bunch of different stuff. And what I would say, Again, I don't know that I should be offering advice here, but I will share a book called Good to Great, written by Jim Collins. And Jim gave me this book, 2001. Okay, so 19 years ago, Jim gave me a review copy of Good to Great so that I could tell him what I thought about the book. And when he gave me that book, he gave me some advice. He said, do you have a don't do list? And I said, what the heck is that? Most people have a to-do list. And they add things that they want to do to their to-do list. He said, the problem with that is that everything takes space. So where's that space going to come from? And the answer is, it's going to come from stuff you don't intend. So for instance, let's say you want to learn how to play the piano. Where's that time going to come from? Well, it's probably going to come from maybe time you spend with your friends, or maybe time you spend reading, or maybe time you spend with your family, or time you spend resting. You add too much new stuff, you end up without time. So Colin's suggestion to me, was to make it the don't-do list. This is a list of things you intentionally do not do. So let me give you some of the things on my don't-do list. I don't do social media. So if you see me on LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or any of those things, that's not me. That's a marketing firm that was hired to sell a book. And if you notice, most of those accounts are pretty recent, except for LinkedIn, where I have like 2,000 unreplied requests. And I've got a Twitter account because, of course, my friend started Twitter. But you're not going to find me tweeting. I don't do it. I don't read it. I don't touch any of that stuff. I'm buddies with Kevin who started Instagram. I don't use Instagram. Never been on Facebook ever. So zero social media. I don't watch news. I kind of have to these days because of the COVID-19 thing, but generally zero news. I don't gas up cars. I basically made a list of all things I was not going to do. And the interesting side effect of this, Sean, was it gave me a massive amount of free time. Like I have gobs of time. I am so protective of my time and I am frequently bored. And if you're frequently bored, you can learn to play the piano or you can learn to blow glass or you can learn to fly a plane or you can serve on the Fed or start companies. Or like I spend a lot of time with my family. I hang out with friends a lot and I get a lot of sleep and it's Jim Collins, good to great. So maybe that's the best secret I can offer your listeners. Wow. Good advice. I've never heard that from anyone ever before. After this call, I think I'll start my do not do list. And with that, Jim, I want to thank you for your time today. And if any of our listeners writes a review for this, shares this episode, is there a way that they could get a, a book or we could put their name in a hat, raffle it off for a prize, possibly a copy of your new book? Yes. I'm going to have the publisher send you five copies and you can distribute them to your folks as you wish. And everybody can get a free copy of the Birth of Banking, which is the cartoon version of Chapter 9 of the Innovation Stack. 
It's a cartoon. It's a comic book, but go to jimmckelvey.com and get that for free. Want to give everyone something. And look, I want these ideas out there. There are too many problems in the world for us to have some of our greatest resources on the sidelines. So yeah, get in there and do something. Great. So everyone listening, please write a review, take a picture, email me. All the information will be in the show notes and all the information, Jim's new book, good to great. Everything that was talked about today will be in the show notes. So visit the website and Jim, thank you once again for all your time today. This is great, Sean. Thank you again. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the Silicon Valley podcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.